0: If you or a loved one has a hoarding problem, let's work together on a solution.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for stopping by the Hoarding Solution podcast today. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, who is Frank King. He is a suicide prevention speaker and trainer. He wrote for the uh, Tonight Show for 20 years, and it has the Mental Health Comedian LLC. So thank you, Frank, for joining us.
0: My pleasure. I just renewed the LLC so I could get my PPP. <laughs> Payroll Protection Program, uh, I think it is.
1: Plan, program. Plan,
0: program, whatever. They sent me the money. So,
1: Well, that's what matters at this point, I think, for a lot <laughs> of us.
0: Uh, Yeah, somebody said, what would they say? Something about three months. Somebody taking the next three months off, and I said, no, I'm probably taking the next six months off, not voluntarily, because I normally speak live in front of large groups, and, of course, nobody much is having large conferences live. So I'll be broadcasting from my living room in my bunny slippers for the next six months, (laughs) I think.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's the challenge, I know, for a lot of people that, Speak and do the live events I mean it's really difficult right now to to continue with what you thought you were going to do.
0: Yes, although I pivoted I do uh they have a green screen and a virtual background that looks you know as actually fools some people wow, you got a flat screen TV no, I didn't get a flat screen TV uh, <laughs> and I stand up and we're're a, a wireless lapel mic so it looks like you're doing a keynote it's uh rather than you know we're rather than podcast where you are wearing a headset so forth and I've I actually have another uh, profit center which is the TEDx coaching which I'm focusing on the on marketing that because that's the kind of thing I can always do from my house you know on zoom hour a week or whatever so I'm focusing all my marketing on the TEDx coaching
1: well and and that's the thing now is that figuring out the pivot piece you know like what what am I going to do now since yep. things everything is turned upside down
0: our good news is the there are a good the number of TEDx talks that are planning to be live in the first quarter of the year. So my clients and I are applying for January, February, March. Uh, a lot of people think the TEDx aren't hap, aren't happening, which is good because that means fewer people
1: will apply. <laughs> you have a greater greater opportunity to be that, the person they choose.
0: That exa- exactly. That's why I tell my clients, look, now is the time because a lot of people think they aren't happening.
1: Right, and I think there's misinformation out there about like what what you can actually do or not do given this time frame and i mean we're in september right so i mean 2021 is not that far away
0: it is not and um i'm a little worried when flu season bumps into COVID season although somebody said that they they're anticipating fewer cases of flu because in a lot of places like oregon where i am when you go out go to the grocery store you have to be wearing a mask so that doesn't normally happen in flu season. People just give it to one another there in the checkout line. Uh, so maybe the flu season won't be so bad because of the precautionary by And
1: that, that could be. I mean, I'm in Washington, so just north of you. And, yeah, I mean, every public, you know, place that you're going into, you have to have some kind of face covering or mask or, you know, something. So
0: Yeah, and the governor here, Governor Brown, extended that until November 1st for us, I think. So... And, you know, I being mentally ill and working from home normally, it's not a big stretch. I, you know, people, say, is it hard on you? No, not really. I, <laughs> I, well, I have two mental illnesses. I wake up in an uncertain world every day. So I've, I've got a self-care plan. And I have, you know, other techniques that I use so I can get out of bed in the morning, which, by the way, I've been teaching to neurotypical people. I've got a, I've got a keynote I wrote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. Don't worry about your mentally ill friends. Because if, you know, if we're high functioning and taking care of ourselves, chances are we can weather this because we have, you know, techniques in place. And so I've been teaching those techniques to otherwise neurotypical people who are probably suffering from situational depression, I think, at this point, because of the uncertainty of it all.
1: And that uncertainty is a huge piece of it. And if you are, are struggling with any sort of mental health situation, uh, it's so important to have that plan in place already. Yes. You know? And if you don't have it in place, I think that's where we see the increase in in depression, the suicide rate. Uh, you know, if you don't have if you don't have some of those self care pieces already in place, mm-hmm. like this is really challenging for you.
0: Yep. Uh, fortunately, I've been you know mentally ill my entire life, so I pretty much pretty much got this wired i'm not really uh you know it's uh it's just another day the uh, metaphor i heard on a a podcast somebody said you know the COVID thing frank the uncertainty is like this i tell you i want you to run 20 miles and you go okay 20 miles all right and you make it to mile 15 yeah it's pretty hard but you think man only five miles to go but if i told you frank run how far don't know when can i quit not sure. <laughs> uh, you're gonna be a little less enthusiastic. Oh man, how long is this gonna keep going? Huh. So And
1: is there water like you know? <laughs> yeah, <that's>,
0: uh, <laughs> exactly. So it's uh yeah, it's uh anyway, that's um that's it's it's difficult for everybody. It's uh I I worry about my neuro normal, neurotypical friends who've never been depressed and May not recognize that's what's happening to them. You know, what's this feeling? And so I try to, you know, counsel them on. We'll describe the symptoms and, you know, you know and maybe you need to be evaluated. Maybe a, you know, a mental health, uh, a appointment for mental health or something. You know, call your HR and have them drag out the e, uh, EAP and blow the dust off the binder and uh, see what kind of mental health benefits you have on, you know, available to you. So.
1: Well, and, and I think sometimes like I've struggled with anxiety most of my life and I didn't realize like when I was younger, I didn't really know what that was or what coping mechanisms I had that I was using to deal with it. Yeah. And um, so I but I've heard and I think it's true that if you have had to weather some storms in your life when other bigger things happen like this you're sometimes a little more prepared to deal with it because you've already had to figure out what the hell you're doing, you know, so that you can function to some degree.
0: Yeah. Somebody, uh, I think resilience is a good thing. Resilience training is a good thing, but I believe in terms of the mentally ill and resilient or resilience, some of the most resilient people I know are friends of mine who are, you know living with one, with one mental illness or another and perhaps thoughts of suicide because if they weren't resilient they still it wouldn't still be here so um i think it's it's you know maybe they should be teaching resilience how do you how do you get out of bed in the morning when you know when you want to pull the covers over your head and binge watch netflix
1: right yeah. like what's your motivation what what is your uh your vision your you know what is your why why are you getting yeah. up why are you still here and I think well, so I'm a veteran and there's a lot of people in my life that are veterans and I think one of the things that people need to realize is that you need a new mission. You need to have a new purpose, a new why. And yep. And that's something that transitioning military need to know as well. Like you might be you might have served your time, you might have or you might be retiring, but and you look forward to that glorious moment when you don't have an alarm clock or someone telling you what to do, or you don't have to manage, you know, herd cats in your daily job, but what are you going to do next? Like you need to have almost like a succession plan of what's your next thing, you know? And there have been days when I know exactly what you mean. Like today is not a day I really want to function, but Mm -hmm. what is, what is it that's drawing me to get up? What, what's my motivation? What's my, What's my why?
0: Why am I doing this? And I use a technique called gamification, which I've been teaching, uh, podcasts, webinars, where I, if I'm having difficulty getting out of bed, I make a to-do list, six things. And the game is, as soon as I scratch off number six, I can go back to bed. I don't care if it's three in the afternoon, broad daylight. <laughs> I can go back to bed and binge watch the second season of Ozark or whatever it is I want to see. Mm-hmm. So you make a game of it just to get out. Because, you know, you know, forward motion is not a cure. But it is palliative—anxiety, uh, stress, depression. You know, if you're moving forward, uh, it seems to help ease the pain. Um, be productive. That's why I love cutting the grass, because when you're cutting the grass, you know, when you get about halfway done, you can look and you can see, wow, it looks great. I mean, you can see your work, and it's somewhat mindless, so you can put on an audible and maybe a good, good, you know, good murder mystery or something, and just kind of zone out and. That's uh, so those are the kind of things I do also when, you know, when I try to do something, uh, I do it in half hour bursts, by the way, I call it half hour power. I can do almost anything for half an hour. So let's say I got to do my taxes and it's got to be done today. So every, every other half hour I do my taxes and in the middle I've got that list and whatever, whichever thing on the list I want to do for the interim half hour. I set the, my alarm and I do that for half an hour and I come back and do taxes, then go cut the grass for half an hour, then do taxes. And that way I can actually get it done at, you know, by the end of the day. Otherwise, if I sat down and just said, got oh, God, do my taxes, that would just <laughs> be a grind. So anyway.
1: But that's so, a great, a great skill because, uh, so a lot of the work that I do with people, uh, they say they're overwhelmed and they don't mm-hmm. know where to start. And that's true. If you look at this big insurmountable mountain, you won't even start. But if you can break it up into manageable time slots or manageable pieces of, I'm gonna sort this basket right now, then you don't get bogged down in it. And like you have something to look forward to. I, I have a friend who would say, you pull weeds on your lunch hour, which I used to do. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, cause like I get to be outside, it's mindless. Um, yep. I've heard people say that weeding is like um, pulling someone up by their by their spine. So when you pull that weed, you're just like, you're yanking it out. And it, so it is some kind of stress relief in a way. And yep. getting outside in that grounding piece. And like you're saying, being able to see the progress you've made is something so valuable that you don't, I don't know if we see it unless we do something physical like that. Like we don't see that we completed something sometimes.
0: Yeah. That's why I love the grass. Because when you get done, you look back, you know, you get edged, it's edged, you know, and it's a, I call it micro and macro. My first goal is to do the macro, which is to cut the grass. Right. And then I go back with the weed eater and I do the, you know, the finer work, the micro you know, around the house and around the pots, uh, and again, it's something I do late in the afternoon, which is my worst time of day. Mm. So I figured, look, it gets to be about four o'clock, and that's kind of my low point, three, four o'clock. So that's when I hit, hit, you know, go outside and start doing whatever the chore, you know, change the filter in the uh, heat pump and, you know, drain the stock tank for the dogs, fill it back. Things that don't take a lot of mental energy. But again, you, like you said, you can see when you're done, you go, well,
1: oh, that looks great. So. And and actually something you mentioned there about keying into what is your low point, what is your what is your high point, like what's your paying attention to what your needs are throughout mm. your day and being really keyed into that, I think is really valuable.
0: Yeah, the one of the things I teach when I'm talking about a self care plan is that I believe you need to get up about the same time of day, go to bed about the same time of day and honor your body clock. And for me, it's, it's really weird. I think maybe because I grew up on the East coast and I live on the West coast. I, my time, I I naturally wake up between two and three in the morning and go to bed between seven and eight. And all I really need is six and a half hours. I've I've determined that over time. I fought it for years because I'm a comedian. I can't be a morning person. Uh, But it turns out I am. So and I schedule all my zoom calls you know, just uh, sort of marketing calls on my calendar, on Calendly, well, you know, you can set mm-hmm. a parameter and all my Zoom calls are three to six because that's, that's my lowest energy point of the day. So, I, but I can sit and chat, you know, during that period. So yeah, I've, I've finally begun to honor my, my, um, my body clock. I mean, it used to be before I started taking a little Wellbutrin, I could tell you without a watch, when it was five o'clock because <laughs> you know I starts I start sliding at three and and at five that's about the point where I hit my biorhythms are at their lowest or something and so uh yeah I, I, I try not to do anything where I have to think after that point just march you know march through whatever I need to do t- till it's time to go to bed
1: and and getting in touch with that rhythm and knowing and knowing what works for you like a couple of days ago I was like so I'm sitting here in my pajamas at eight in the morning, drinking coffee. Like, shouldn't I be being productive? But then I realize I am being productive. I have a pen in my hand. I have paper. I'm writing yeah. journaling. I'm working on my mindset. Um, and that always spills over into, Oh, I should go do this X, Y, and Z. Or it allow, it gives room for thought. And yeah. to stop, I think it's important as people, but also if you're a business owner, a writer, a a thinker, a comedian, if you're any of those things, you need to create an environment where you have space to create and not beat yourself up for what works for you. And it may not work for everyone else. And that's okay.
0: Yeah. I find in the morning, I usually wake up around two and something I developed quite a few years ago, I lie in the dark with my eyes closed. I actually have a double shot of espresso that I knock back. And then I lie back down in the dark. And sometimes I'll put up, let's say you wanted a tagline for your business. You and I talked about it the night before. So I put that into my head and oftentimes in the morning I wake up and I just let my mind drift and I've got a client who has a gambling addiction. He's in recovery. He lost a million dollars over 15 years. Wow! And we're working on a TEDx talk. And so I was thinking about what would be a good title for his TEDx. And I woke up. I'm lying there in the dark, and up into my my brain floats this sentence: "You got to know when to fold them." And I thought, that's it. That's the title of his talk. You got to know when to fold them. Uh, and I sent it to him. He goes, Oh my God. <laughs> that's Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But that's the kind of thing I usually wake up with whatever, you know, idea. And the next morning, uh, part of the problem with gambling as an addiction is, you know, it's, it's become so normalized. I mean, this, you know, the state, state of Washington, I think actually has sports betting in addition to scratch offs and the lottery and other forms of gambling. So it's it's state sanctioned. So it seems very, and for most people, it doesn't matter, you know, buy a few scratch-offs, you know, get a couple of lottery tickets a week, but for somebody like him, and it occurred to me, if you if you think about the English language in this country, how many uh, expressions are gambling expressions? You know, uh, let's roll the dice on that, uh, you know, uh, um, the odds are, uh, dark horse candidate. I mean, it's just a laundry list of, you know, betting on the cum, like on the, in a craps game. Um, it, I mean, it... And I said to him, again, I woke up, wrote it down on my iPhone, sent it to him. He goes, oh, my God, you're right. What's happened is because of these expressions have become part of the vernacular, it's, again, normalizing, you know, the, the um, you know, and you hear people joke, yeah, what's the over-under on that? I'm talking about something that's not going to happen. And so that's going to go in his TEDx as well as how the language, how they use language, the language has been used to normalize, again, gambling, which for most people doesn't matter, but for somebody like him. It's just pure poison. Um, so
1: right. in that the addiction aspect of gambling, of hoarding, alcohol, drug, I mean there is so um, food, uh, there's just so many things in our culture that you know come into play when it comes up in an addiction sense. you know I mean there's so many ways I think that we normalize it in our society that I think it it's part of why it's so hard to say I have a problem with this. I've got
0: three three storage units full of stuff. Um, I have a friend who is a hoarder. It's actually, I believe a a symptom of another uh, pathology. Uh, I think he is, um, I think he may be borderline or, you know, Depressed. Uh, what was it? It was atypical drug-resistant depression for a long time. And then, then when borderline, when they came up with a solid list of things that meant, you know, symptoms of borderline, I believe he is maybe borderline. But one of the symptoms is he is definitely a hoarder. He and he admits uh, he does, and and of course he's got he's got a storage unit because you know he ran out of space in the apartment. So. I, I got to think that the store, whole storage unit thing, I mean, it's again, you got too much stuff, not a problem. We'll rent you the storage unit. You know, we'll rent you two, rent you three, we don't care. Stuff it full. So I and, find, though, the, the hoarding fascinating. Because, um, you know, from the outside looking in, it's like, well, throw the crap away. And I know better. It's not that easy. It's not that, it's like telling an anorexic to eat. Just eat. Whoa, well, we're it that simple. You know what it, I mean?
1: Right, if it were that simple. And for, in, in hoarding, in my own experience growing up in it, um, and in work I've done with people now, uh, there is this underlying trauma that is a thread. And I believe that part of the reason people hoard is because they have an underlying issue they haven't addressed. And so hoarding, to me, the stuff is the symptom. It is a problem, but it's not the actual issue. Right. And there is, in general, some other co-occurring situation. It could be anxiety, depression. It could be into bipolar. It could be into schizophrenia. It, It. And there's a huge component of narcissism for some people in hoarding, where. I mean, it's, that's their only focus. Everything else is excluded. And so like you're saying with the storage units, I've had someone who had like eight storage units and they were barely able to pay their rent in their duplex. And I'm like, so part of the issue here is A, yes, too much stuff. B, you know, you're about to be evicted for the amount of stuff in your apartment and and C, you can't afford to move because all your money is being used up in your storage space fees. Yep. And you're right. They don't, it doesn't matter how many units you rent, as long as you pay your rent for those units. But I've seen a storage unit sign will say Porter's welcome here. And I'm like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> again, normalize-
1: you sure? you know normalizing the behavior.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and hoarding isn't always squalor, although most, in my experience, a lot of the time it is. It can be nicely stacked boxes to the ceiling. But if you can't use your space how it's intended, no matter how you stack your stuff, it's not healthy. So, I mean, but I do see, and, and it's the reason why people don't like to reach out for help because there's this negative stigma around hoarders. And I try to stay away from that term because people have a behavior. So you might be a person that hoards, but that doesn't mean you have to describe yourself in a negative way. Oh you yeah, uh,
0: I, I live with depression and I'm not depressed.
1: Right, it, you know, I might have a drinking problem, but I'm not a, a drunk or an alcoholic. Like we don't wanna be seen in a negative way even if that's a negative behavior that we're doing. And I think that stops people from reaching out because they don't want to be judged or stigmatized. Um,
0: yeah, and, and as, uh, I've known this gentleman for, well, since we were both 20, maybe, which would be, what, 43 years? And the day came when when I went to San Diego for business, for a speech or something, and I said, hey, listen, let's go to lunch. And I goes, I'll meet you outside the curb. Mm-hmm because he did not want me to come in the apartment. He as good a friend as we are, like I said, because of the stigma. Uh, now, he's he doesn't live in squalor. He's one of those, you know, stacked up, passed through, no no right. rats, no, you know, no uh, cat wee. Um, He's got a cat, but he takes care of the cat box. Um, but yeah, and he's he's facing, I mean, he's on the cusp of eviction. I think his landlord's been very understanding, although, <laughs> although um, my friend Rob, There was a storage space in the back of the apartment nobody ever used. So Rob used it and filled it up. And it was that way for years. And finally, I think the landlord had enough and said, look, you've got until Tuesday to, um, you know, you're going to, I'm going to have my handyman come in. You're going to pay him and we're going to get that thing cleaned out. So kind of drew a line in the sand. Uh, But, you know, again, as you said, because it's such a big job, he tends to, put it off and put it off and put it off until you know same thing happens maybe this is common he's got lots of paper you know bills and invoices and whatever and car titles and and puts off taking care of those sort of details until it's up he's up against the clock and then he can't find the form to register the car this year he knows it's there somewhere but you know where lord is it? which piles it in and I, to my mind as a you know neuronormal in this way i wish you would just step back and let me fly down there and throw away anything that didn't have intrinsic value you know just just go through wholesale uh unemotionally but i know that's not going to happen because if he's looking for that registration i know him if it's buried in a stack of papers he's got to touch each piece of paper Sure, he'll need it at some point, so he can't just dig through and throw out as he's going. You know, it's got to be from one pile to another until he gets down to where he, where the registration is, and then, yeah, it's 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 painful just to to, to to watch and to know. You know, it's I know it's painful for him, and it causes a great, it's a great deal of anxiety because he's going to get evicted, and it's you know it, it's it or is the landlord going to raise the rent to the point where he has to move? To you know, solve the hoarding problem. Um, that's that's a big worry is the landlord's gonna bump the rent and he's not gonna be able to stay there, and he's gonna have to move somewhere else. And
1: and, stuff. And that's a valid concern. And I I have seen where hoarding can lead to eviction, which can lead to inability to rent somewhere else if that's on your record. Yeah. After you've been evicted. And it can also lead to homelessness because now where are you gonna go? No one wants to rent to you. And the thing I see with, um, and something I had expressed when I've spoken to landlords and done presentations for real estate folks is um, you cannot just tell someone clean it up and go away and think in a (laughs) week you're gonna come back and there's gonna be progress. And I've had landlords say, you know, hey, I saw, you know, someone had a problem, I I mentioned it, I thought I'd be kind, and I came back in two weeks, and they hadn't done anything. True. Like, you have to have more um, intervention is the word I have come to. And you have to have help and touch points. And if something took 10 years to get that bad, it's not going to be correctable in 10 minutes, or maybe even 10 days. And so... I feel for your friend because it's a valid fear that he may either, he may be able to stay, but someone may say, you're going to have to clean it up, you know, and I want it done by Mm -hmm. this date and it can be expensive to hire someone. um, If you even get to the point that you're willing to do that and you need someone who, who is aware of the emotional component, not just the stuff component, which, um, can be challenging because you can't always find someone in your area that is aware of the whole picture, which is for me, part of why I decided to get a big mouth and start talking about this (laughs) (laughs) because there's so many things we could do better around the situation and just noticing it and engaging like your friend is very fortunate that he has you and we're very lucky sometimes that we has one or two people in our lives that know what the heck's really going on oh yeah if he won't let you help yes how annoying it is how frustrating how sad to be like i know what needs to happen but you won't allow it and that is very true for probably 90 percent of the people i've seen who want to try to intervene with someone and that person will not allow it. Although like you're saying, he may be aware, but there's so much shame in it that they won't let you in. And if someone does let you in and, and I've had this experience, it's like, oh, like you want to be really respectful that they a lot trusted you enough to do that. Yet, that trust can be immediately gone if you use trigger words or um, tell them, you know, Hey, we're going to, I'm going to get some contractor bags to, and tomorrow we're going to throw out all your crap. Like it's not going to work like that. And they will probably have some sort of emotional meltdown because they aren't prepared to do it. And like, they want to be in charge. And if you come in and say, we're going to do it this way. Now you're taking that power away. And so there is, like, this power struggle between what needs to happen versus what they will allow to happen.
0: Yeah, the only time it's ever we've ever gotten any, any progress was I was there for a day or two with a speech, had some free time in the middle of the day. So he asked me, would you just come over and keep me keep me company while I do it? And it worked. I mean, I watched him go. He saved newspapers. He's afraid he's going to miss an article, you know. Right. And I, you no know, matter how many times I tell him, I'm guessing it's all online somewhere. Uh, but he, I would sit and we would chat, and he would look at the paper and then put it in throwaway pile. Look in the paper. I mean, it, it's a it's an arduous and slow process. But but you're right because he had control. I wasn't coming through with the contractor bag, just stuffing stuff in there, which is what you would normally want to do. Get it done. You know, get a con get, get a construction dumpster and pull it up outside and just wholesale. But uh, yeah as long as he's in control of it and he's hired other people to come over and sit and chat with him you know to help him kill the time and go through as he goes through his he's got little ocd um he's also suicidally attempted first at eight years old then no four years old then eight then 12. wow yeah so the and the ocd very black and white thinking you know lets the perfect be the enemy of the good but i know all this and so the other day his computer broke his laptop and i said robert I'm guessing it's just a shot in the dark. And you've got another laptop in a box somewhere in the apartment. I knew he did. Because <laughs> he, buy, he buys two and three of everything, mm. and so he goes, "Yeah, I got, I got, got a laptop." How would you know that? You know, we joke back and forth. Um, but yeah, uh, and I think it's important to have people around you. I tell, I tell folks all the time, you need a pit crew. You need people around you that that aren't going to judge that when you when they. When they ask you how you're feeling, they really wanna know how you're feeling. And you know, and you can share with them and they won't won't frighten them and they won't should all over. You should do this, you should do that. So yeah, it's uh, but I'm I'm pretty much his you know, his pit group because he doesn't have, you know, as you said, he didn't wanna have anybody with the apartment, so he's not gonna have anybody in. And um uh, and with the with the COVID, he, he went to group every week and that was his social social life, care counseling group. And of course that's not happening. And he's not, he didn't like Zoom. So, Zoom. Well, and
1: like the Zoom exhaustion is real, you know, like you're on screen and you have two or three meetings and you're like, I mean, I can, I've even gotten that way where I'm like, okay, I haven't left my house, but I'm done peopling like for an hour. <laughs> like how did that happen? Oh, I've been on a lot of calls and connections and things today, but I really like what you said about the pit crew and knowing that you, you know, if you've got one or two people in your corner where you can be totally honest, it makes all the difference. And I I know that hoarding is very isolating yeah. if you're the person who does it or if you are in it and you can't invite your friends over, you can't have people over, even if you're married to someone who has this issue. Like, it's a very isolating experience. And I, I, th- I think... Uh, And this is the hard part has been the hard part for me through COVID is I don't mind working from home. I like my house. I like my yard. My dog is here. Like, but when I want to leave, it's like this production and where am I going to go? Like I can't go work at the coffee shop or I was talking to someone earlier today. I'm like, the salad bar is open again. Do you know how exciting that is? Like, when did I get excited about a pizza bar or, you know, a salad bar and a pizza joint when I couldn't go, when someone told me no? So I think having those connections is helpful, but it's very different on, say, Zoom or even a phone call than if you're in person, even like you do, speaking at events versus someone being able to go to a group meeting and, and connect with people. I, it's just very unsettling, I think. And then if you don't like technology, or if technology bites you in the butt, which happens, like, I was on a podcast a couple days ago, we had like partial sound, not all sound. And so it was very annoying, because we had a good conversation, but the audience couldn't hear it. (laughs) So like, um, and, but something that I would like to ask about, because I was looking at your website around, you were talking about farmers and suicide yeah. prevention for farmers. And I was like, I have never heard someone talk about that, but I get it because so many things are changing in our world and you're so dependent on the weather and whatever people decide you can and can't do. Um, my, both of my grandparents were farmers, one in Minnesota, one in Iowa. So I feel this connection to that community, and I'm just wondering, how did that come about? like how did you see that like farmers needed like a specific attention put on them
0: well when I, when I decided I was going to just speak on suicide prevention, I looked around at the occupations with the highest rates rates of suicide, and the first three are construction mining, excavation they're they're like one, two, three, the order changes construction. Eight out of 10 people who die by suicide in the U.S. generally are men. Construction's male-heavy, so is excavation and mining.
1: Right. And
0: tough guys, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of guys. And then it's fishing, farming, forestry. In that next three, they, they go back and forth. And the farming, farm income uh, is less than it was, I think, on, the, on average, less than it was in 2012, eight years later. Mm-hmm. And commodity prices, I've got a friend of the farmer, I guess friend commodity prices are like the same prices when my dad and I were farming in the 60s, you know, farming together. And then, like I said, there's the weather. And then there was the issue with China and the tariffs. There right. was some money that came to the farmers, but not enough to, um, you know, to make up the difference. And farming is a very solitary occupation generally. Again, male heavy, although there are female women farmers. Um, you're out there by yourself. Uh, many farmers have another job or the spouse has a job to, to, to support the the, fa- the hobby of being a All farmer. Right. <laughs> um, and part of the problem is I chose dentists, veterinarians, physicians, and construction. Each of those occupations are working really hard to bring down the rate of suicide. I've approached a number of farm bureaus and co-ops and such, and they. one person actually told me they thought it was uh, unseemly for me to call up and mention that. And I said, You guys are in the top five or six occupations at risk for suicide. I think it's something we need to be we need to be chatting about because you know, if you're in the top ten, um and, and you you know, we're losing farmers steadily. Um, it's so that that's how I got to farmers. I and I made several attempts with at several farm bureau organizations, several co ops, the farm co ops, and there doesn't seem to be any interest yet in stemming the tide. I think they will come around eventually uh dentists sort of led the pack and veterinarians have a very similar business model same amount of college loan debt when they come out and um the dentists have different like stress they find themselves in stress positions all the time you know trying to get the right angle on the filling and veterinarians have easy access to barbiturates so that's that's a that's a difference between the two um but yeah, but mostly, uh, mostly uh, solo entrepreneurs as farmers are. Um, again, there's a financial pressure because of all the college loan debt. And with farmers, as you mentioned, there's the weather and, you know, you're, you're banking, you're borrowing money against the next year's crop. Right. And so you know, it's a rare farm where everything's paid off. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I fear for the farmers. It's, you know, it's, it's not a good situation at this point. And they're not doing anything about it as far as I could tell. So.
1: And, and that's so, that, and I think that's part of the challenge is that people don't want to talk about this hard stuff. Like you bring it up and they're like, oh, well, we can't talk about that. No. Um, how's that working? Like it took 20 years for hoarding disorder to be its own diagnosis. Like it took 20 years for that to show up <laughs> in the diagnostic services, you know, statistics manual. Like, and not everyone meets that criteria, obviously. Yeah. I'm I'm more of a coach and a life experience person, and, and I know what works in some in most cases for hoarding things. But the fact that it took that long for that problem to show up somewhere that you could diagnose it, and, and now that it's there, you still don't want to talk about it. The suicide is huge. It's like 22 a day in the veteran, you know, first responder community.
0: Yeah, um, one physician a day.
1: I mean, how is it we could choose to turn a blind eye to something that is happening? And I, I know someone whose dad committed suicide when he was in his he, he was in his 40s. His dad was like early 60s, and it it rocks your family. Oh, it yeah. changes so much for you and the guilt that you might feel because you weren't there, didn't catch it, the things you think you might do to help, it, you are beating yourself up for the loss of that person. Not yeah, survivor's guilt. Right. What the person who, the thing that I have found and the thing I have found personally is... It isn't that you want to die. It's that you want the pain to stop.
0: Oh, listen to you. You're the first person. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the myths I try to bust when I speak. Because people go, why did so-and-so want to die? He had everything to live for. He probably didn't want to die. He just wanted to end the pain.
1: And and I think if we are were coming at it from that perspective more, if more people understood, that's why people commit suicide or think about it, whatever is going on, high debt, you know, you, you the crop didn't come through, um, you know, you, you can't pay off, you know, this thing, you can't support your family, like there's all these painful things that are happening. And that's why people make that choice or decision. And it's just... I know people who have, other people who have survived suicide attempts, but it's like a daily, it's a daily battle for you to to beat it every day. And it's not like it, it goes away. I have a friend, um, James McNeil, who wrote a book called um, Find Your Personal Mission. And he's a two-time suicide survivor. Whoa. And um, he was actually a guest a few uh, episodes ago on the podcast and to take that pain and turn it into something positive is, is very affirming. I think if you're still here and able to talk about it.
0: And therapeutic for me. And it's what I discovered when I was ramping up for my first TEDx talk, because nobody in my family, my wife, my friends, nobody knew I was depressed and suicidal. So I came out on stage at age 56 on on the TED stage. uh, Everybody was just like, what? You? Uh, What I discovered leading up to that was, even though one person dies by suicide roughly every 11 minutes in the U.S., hardly anybody talks about it. But if you bring it up, almost everyone has a story. Right. And so my clients tell me oftentimes, you know, Frank, we simply brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide. Because if I get up on stage and I'm vulnerable and I tell my do my lived experience and then, and then what I teach them is, what you were talking about, I teach them the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide. Because oftentimes people say, we well, never gave any indication. Well, eight out of 10 people who are suicidal in general are ambivalent. They want somebody to notice and interrupt. Nine out of 10 people give hints in the week leading up to it. So they obviously want someone to pick up on you know, direct, indirect, verbal, non-verbal, behavioral hints, and intervene. So that's the good news. You can make a difference, you can save a life, and you can do it by doing something as simple as what you and I are doing and start the conversation. If I said to you, are you depressed? You said yes. And I said, are you having thoughts of suicide? Yes. Do you have a plan? If you had a plan, and it was detailed. Um, Then, you know, it's time to call the suicide prevention lifeline. If it's not particularly detailed, my advice is to ask this question well are you going to kill yourself and then if they say no then the last question and most important i think well then tell me why not make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here and i think if we allowed people to voice their thoughts you know that i'm thinking about suicide without locking them down for three days i mean there are people who do definitely need to be you know the involuntary detention order. They're going they're definitely out to harm themselves or someone else. But I think if we allow people to talk about it more openly, we'd have we'd have fewer suicides because I I met a guy who was 67, I was at a gig, I was just doing comedy, and then they always asked me at the table, you know, 10 top. Anything do you do anything else? And I go, I speak on suicide prevention. We talked about it. And I said I have chronic suicidal ideation, meaning, you know, for me it's always on the menu. And a guy followed me to the bathroom. And I turned around, he goes, Frank, I've got it. I go, you got what? I've got I've got that. That thing you said. I didn't know it had a name. I've got chronic suicidal ideation. And he goes, and I've never told anybody that till this moment, not even my therapist. <laughs> and I said, Why haven't we told our therapist? He goes, because if I told him that here in California, 5150, they'd lock me down for three days. He, you know, by law, he would be, you know, duty-bound to drag me in front of a judge for an involuntary detention So I think if we could speak about it more openly. But, you know, the problem is there's a stigma of mental illness, a stigma of thoughts of suicide. And for me, mental illness seems to be kind of where alcoholism was maybe 70 or 80 years ago. There's a reason alcoholics anonymous were anonymous. Because people thought it was a character flaw and a moral problem. Nobody really thought it was an illness. And I think mental illness is kind of right there where people are just beginning to realize you know, that it's not a character flaw. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, you know, if there's any silver lining to this pandemic, it's a lot of otherwise normal people are experiencing depression that will have a whole new respect, you know, for people who have, you know, for whom it's genetic or whatever. So, yeah. Well, I, uh, I, go ahead. No, I just, I just, and I think people with the, um, people that, uh, hoard, uh, oftentimes, especially if, they're, if, if it's connected with something like OCD, I have I, I, read that suicide rate is higher than just the average run-of-the-mill, you know, human being. If you especially if you combine hoarding with, say, obsessive compulsive disorder, if there are you know like comorbidities, but you would know better than I.
1: I don't know the numbers, like statistics for that. But what I do see is a lot of suffering and. Honestly, I think sometimes hoarding is like death by stuff, oh. like you're, you're burying yourself alive. And I know there's different shows and there's different books and different things that kind of have buried in the title, but I think that sometimes that's what people are doing. You don't want people in, you don't want anyone there. Ah, uh, okay you 're hiding everything everything about you in uh, and that's why it's really difficult if a forced cleanout happens because now your blanket your security everything that you thought was keeping you safe it has now been ripped away and that's sometimes forced cleanouts have to happen especially if there's rodents especially if you're trying to come home from some kind of surgery and you can't navigate in your space. Mm. Um, And and it, it does have to happen, but it's not ideal because that person is re-traumatized. So there's that aspect of it, but like, I also want to say, like you were talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason it's anonymous is because people saw it as a flaw. And a, a lot of people now See hoarding as a flaw, and while it's a problem, it, there are things that are happening with you personally that aren't maybe being addressed, and maybe you aren't on medication. Maybe you haven't told your therapist. Maybe you're not in therapy. A lot of people aren't in therapy because why? stigma and if not stigma, how much is the copay? Oh and I don't like telehealth, so that's why I'm not seeing my therapist now. I mean there's all these <laughs> things that people use as roadblocks to getting help for themselves. And personally, I went through therapy for three years, and it took a while to dig deep enough to say, yeah, my parents uh, were hoarders in the 80s, and we didn't call it anything. And I can still see the therapist looking at me going, I don't think I've ever talked to an adult kid of parents that hoard, which now is my my little catchphrase but a lot of people are in even in therapy and counseling like you said I have suicidal ideation like the person who approached you and I haven't told my therapist why because all these ramifications come up and that's why people don't want you to come in to their space and it's not uncommon for a person to be in therapy if they're there and they may be there for two years and never have told their therapist the condition of their home people aren't asking what's the condition of your home and mental health they aren't asking that in medical questions they are not people will say oh are, um, are you thinking about suicide it's so flippant it's so and even if you said yes what are the ramifications going to be uh personally financially would you lose your job um it's why people don't seek the treatment, because there's so many negative or perceived, but true, negative things that can happen if you seek to get better mental health. Thank you so much for stopping by and listening to us talk with Frank King, the mental health comedian. More of his story will continue in just a moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned isolation. That's one of the three leg. There's three Suicide is basically a three-legged stool. Isolation, social isolation. of course, the more stuff you have, the less likely somebody's coming in the house. Right. Even my, you know, my good friend of forty years wouldn't didn't want me in the house, um, even though I was well aware of his issues. Then there's the, the, burdensomeness. The world would be better off without me. Mm-hmm. I had a million-dollar life insurance policy, and I. You know, we filed bankruptcy, and I thought I could fix this. Mm. Uh, you know that's how, I, that's how I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like uh, before I pulled the trigger. However, I called my insurance agent to make sure the two-year suicide clause was up, and it was not. It was twenty two months. I had to wait two months to kill myself because my the rational part of my brain would not allow me to, to leave my wife broken-hearted and broke. Mm. Um, so I thought, well man, because I have chronic suicidal ideation and knew full well I could do it in sixty one days you know then that that 's my superpower sadly, it allowed me to make it through those two months because I knew you know come day sixty one if I still wanted to do it i 'm done, and she 'll get the million dollars so there 's that burdensomeness, and then there's the um you 've crossed that barrier in your mind that you can do it, even infants have a an amazing will to live, but you have gone across that, that barrier and you're, you know, you're thinking regardless of the pain, suffering, I can do it. And so that's the three-legged stool. So with hoarding, obviously, as it gets, you know, worse and worse, you become more and more isolated and that plays into, you know, those thoughts of suicide. and, And I think my friend who lives in San Diego, who is a hoarder, I think that's in the back of his mind. You know, I can fix it if it gets too bad. If I get, if I'm about to get evicted, like you said, because of an eviction on your record, it's gonna be very difficult to rent another place. And where's he gonna go? And how's he gonna move? And you know,
1: and all that stuff can't go with you if you end up in a homeless situation. I mean, I see people. Well, I could go on a whole nother rant around. (laughs) around homelessness, but, um, like you can only bring so much with you. And I see, so I guess I see this connection between mental health and, um, like if you act out too much because of your attachment to your stuff, now you're going to go to jail or you're going to spend time in a place to calm down type of thing. Mm and. So it's like, could we avoid increasing their stress to that point? Like, could we do something earlier? Uh, Yes, I believe we can, to mitigate a person getting to that point of being evicted. Could we do something earlier about suicide if we are open about it and have the conversation, like provide the space for it? you never know i was thinking this this morning one one comment one smile one sentence can change someone's life and i know that you mentioned that in your bio like just one thing can make all the difference
0: got mm-hmm. a young woman did a facebook post for me uh, for me uh, kind, of, kind of recommendations i put up um I've got a photograph that a guy took for my headshot for comedy. And he had an art project going at the same time. He said, look, Frank, it's an after the light, real film. Take the jacket off, leave the gray t-shirt on. We're going to stand by the window so you get the natural light. And he said, I want you to let something come, you know, kind of out of your eyes. You know, so that when people see the picture, they're thinking there's something going on back there. So for the first time in my life, I thought, okay, I'll show you something. So what I did was consciously try to project that part of my personality that has been trying to kill me for 40 years. And he snapped the picture and I saw it when I saw it, I'm like, Oh God, uh, that's my dark passenger. Uh, Apologies to the Showtime series. So on Facebook, I put up the two pictures, the smiley comedian, the way the world sees me, and then my dark passenger. And I'm talking about it very openly on Facebook. And she was in a low point in her life. And she saw that. And she wrote, you know, she called me. She goes, you know, you gave voice to the way, exactly the way I was feeling. And you were upfront and public about it. And it was just the ray of hope I needed. I mean, if he can do it, you know, it's then I, and she's, she's still around. So it's, uh, yeah, sometimes just a guy in Switzerland sent me an email. He's depressed, 40, lovely wife, darling eight-year-old daughter, good job. But he said to me in the email, I can't tell you the last time I was happy. Mm. He said, I thought I was all by myself. And then I saw your TEDx talk. And I realized for the first time in my life, I, I'm not alone. And so we corresponded back and forth. And I encouraged him at some point when he's ready to share this with friends and family that he can trust. Because, you know, it helped, you know, ease the burden a bit, um, you know. Surround yourself with people who understand and are not going to be judgmental. But yeah, it's just sometimes kind of just a line, a word, a TED talk, you know, it's uh, you never know what impact it's going to have.
1: And that's, you know, I, I went to, well, I've been in the different business conferences and I've been to different things. And I, I'm amazed by, I can say two sentences that I talk about hoarding and I know about it because XYZ. And someone's telling their story like almost immediately, and I can't believe how many things I go to that are absolutely not mental health, not hoarding, not any of that. Right. And you can say two sentences about what you do, and people are there telling their story. They're they're privately messaging me. They're um, that, sitting on a couch over a beer, telling me hey, I know what this was like when I was a kid. And I'm like, and you look at them and you think, I- I'm not alone. And you do think, at least what I experienced, is you think you're all alone. And when yeah. you finally find something that speaks to you that says you're not, it's, it's like falling over yourself grateful sometimes to discover you're not by yourself
0: had a young woman come up at a college event because I tell the story about how it's a solution for me, suicide, problems large and small. And I said, when when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed by a new one or I could just kill myself. I go, that's chronic suicidal ideation in a nutshell, pardon the pun. And she came up afterwards, she goes, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She said, well, you know, the car story, get it fixed by a new and just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I just thought I was some kind of freak. And she goes, when you said that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not in fact alone. And I wept. And and when I did my fourth TED talk, I was in the first flight of speakers, you know, first round.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Another speaker said to me, you leave it after you get done. I go, I can't leave. Why can't you leave? I go, well, when we break for cookies and lemonade, just watch what happens. And sure enough, there were eight people lined up. Everybody had a story. So it's, yeah, it's just, I mean, for me, that's, for me, it's like being sort of like the character of George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. I've been showing what people's lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and go, hey, you're not in fact alone. And 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 if I kill myself, my second law is I can't kill myself because I'd take all those people with me because they wouldn't have heard, they wouldn't have had a chance to hear me speak and, and and let them know they weren't in fact alone. So that that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's that if You said Frank, you're going to kill yourself? No. Well, tell me why not? Because I'm like George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. These people need to hear, they're not alone. And I put my phone number up on the screen, my cell phone. I go, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline you just have a really bad day call a crazy person here's my phone number and you know people (laughs) not many but people call or text or what you know it's just somebody who understands not going to judge just going to listen co-sign whatever they're going through you know it's it's uh, yeah it's very rewarding in that way i've got a uh uh if you don't mind i've got a uh Uh, I think this is on Twitter, this came through I reached out to somebody on Twitter, I'm reaching out constantly On Twitter, to speakers, authors, coaches Whatever, and she says Is this really you, this is crazy, I saw your TEDx Last fall, I watched it again and again Because you were this bit of proof That if I could just keep From acting on my suicidal urges Then there could be a better side of life If I just hung on and kept trying I ended up taking a 10 week leave of absence From work in February this year, best decision Ever made In all honesty, your talk impacted me and gave me a lifeline. I cannot believe I'm actually sharing this with you. Thank you for sharing your story and being willing to be vulnerable for the world to see. Wow, I'm getting emotional now. Thank you, Frank. I mean, I I can't think of a better reason to get out of bed in the morning than that.
1: And the positive impact that you can make just by being vulnerable. Like, how amazing is that?
0: Yeah, I was reading Brene Brown's book. Everybody said, You got to read Brene Brown's book. I thought, How good could she be? So I bought the Audible Vulnerable book. <laughs> I'm reading, I'm listening to her going, Oh my God, vulnerable. That's my superpower. <laughs> Especially for a man to be vulnerable. right. Yeah, it's, it's um, actually, I don't know if I told you this, but uh, two women and I are writing a series of books on men's mental health, kind of a chicken soup for the soul. Each book has twelve gentlemen. Each one has an issue, um, and then it, they talk about things are good, things are bad. Here's how I'm coping, and it's called Guts, Grit, and the Grind: A Mental Mechanics Manual. And there's 4 they There're gonna be four volumes, and it's again for men because they, you know, they that toxic masculinity. They tend not to reach out for help, and we're hoping that with the book, well, what we're what we're figuring is we'll probably sell the book to women mostly who have a man in their life who's got an issue and they just they they have no idea how to help and so they would buy it and you know look up the issue and see how another man is handling it and see what they could do to help so that's that's our hope anyways that uh, men will read it women will read it and guys will reach out and it talks about how men tend to shed friends through life women tend to collect them you know, a uh, men football or sports and, you know, things like army or military and then once they get to their working years outside, say the military, you know, then sometimes the friends they have are the friends who work and outside of that no, you know, no tribe. And so they're they're exercising resources and things, you know, talk about, you know, forming your own group uh, or joining a particular club that you have an interest in, rotary or a car club or know going to the vfw and joining dart team something where you're interacting with men talking about actually important things so
1: well and i'm really happy i actually saw the book i downloaded the i think it's maybe the audible um just before this and the fact that we're talking about men's mental health is really key i think because just like you're saying they don't Reach out. There isn't. Um, you don't have those connections anymore, and I think it's partially why it's hard to leave a job like that's your identity, and so uh, once you retire or you move somewhere else or onto a different job, like who are you now?
0: Well, and you know my research on veterans. The the it's not the veterans who say we're in a war zone. Who always struggle with depression thoughts of suicide. It's, I think the number is actually higher for veterans who were in and then disconnected from the military. Went back into civilian life where nobody's got your back, you know, and that you, you lack the structure and it's very difficult to navigate. And so that was where the highest rate of suicide was. People who were in and then got out regardless of whether they ever went to a war zone. So it's, um, and I think in Oregon, they've got a, a veteran's lifeline, Suicide so prevention lifeline, staffed by veterans. Because, you know, the common experience. And you could, they also talk to active duty military because, you know, telling somebody in the military you're struggling with mental illness, depending on where you're stationed and who's in charge, can be career-limited. And so you got to have somebody to talk to, and who better than somebody who has been in the military and understands the paradigm. So...
1: And the disconnect is really there depending on what your experience was in the military. Yep. Um, I was have always kind of loosely been connected ever since I enlisted as a high school kid. But there was a period of time when I didn't really identify as a veteran, like I got VA benefits and all that, but I wasn't really embracing that experience. And it wasn't until I stepped further into business and reconnected with veterans from all branches that I found my tribe again. And so yeah. finding that tribe again is really important and whatever that means, if it's a car club, if it's darts, if it's by whatever it is, finding your, your people again, I think is very key to surviving all the BS in life.
0: Yeah, there are um, several actual movements. There's the Shed movement out of Australia. Shed's a garage in Australia. And they found that if you've got a couple of guys, both of them with their head under the hood of a car, they can talk about anything and important things because they're not looking at each other in the eye. And that spread to Europe and then the U.S. And then there's the barbershop movement. Barbershops for African Americans have been a place, a safe haven for decades. And so they've been training barbers in mental health first aid. Because again, the barber standing behind you, not looking you in the eye, and you—something about men not looking each other in the eye and doing something else while they're talking allows them to talk about important things. And VFW halls. When I was in Colorado, which is in the suicide belt, you know that's, mm. that Colorado, New Mexico, Utah—they um, found a VFW halls. Everyone pretty much has a bar, and all of them pretty much have uh, dart uh, teams and dart tournaments. And you don't have to be a veteran to go to the VFW Hall and be on a dart team. And they found that if guys are standing there throwing darts, looking down at the dart board, again, not looking at each other in the eye, they can actually talk about, you know, things that are important, emotional things and physical, you know, physical ailments and illnesses and things. So there are movements in the, you know, here and there that are, are picking up steam to help guys, you know, bear their souls to other guys because guys tend to take advice from men. That's why we wrote the book with men in it. My wife right. would tell you, I, I could give her, she could give me, my wife could give me a Nobel Prize winning idea and I would poo poo it. If the mailman told me the same thing, I'm all over it.
1: <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking about conversations I've had with important men in my life. And it is generally when we're doing something else. Yeah. walking, hiking, fishing, crabbing, you know, on a drive somewhere, that's when the conversations are happening. And I think that's an important thing for women to recognize that, that heart to heart, one-to-one face-to-face probably isn't going to be as effective if you're doing it in some other way, you're doing some other activity. And yeah, that I think is really helpful to recognize and just another thing that comes up for me is men need to be men and sometimes you can't do that unless you're with other guys and so (laughs) I think you need to extend grace to men who want to have those connections and let them go do that and don't don't nag and beat them up about it. Let them have a little bit of freedom. And then they might appreciate it a little more when they're with you.
0: Well, and a friend of mine's in, has been in AA for a long time. In a stag chapter. Mm. Just men. And he goes, Frank, now wait, don't get, don't get up in arms. There are chapters that are just women. And he said they found that men in a stag chapter or women in a, whatever they call it, Women only chapter. Women only. They're more forthcoming because there's not somebody in the room of the opposite sex. There's something about having somebody, you know, somebody there of the opposite sex. And the comedy corollary, by the way, is if I had a room full of nuns, nothing but nuns, I could do an R-rated comedy show. (laughs) True. They would would be hysterical. But you put a nun in a room full of, you know, non-nuns. And they're all going to be uncomfortable for her at anything that's even borderline (laughs) R-rated. You know, but if you put a room full of of nuns, we just rock the place. So (laughs) I think you're right. There are, you know, men and women, as much as we like to mix, I think there are times when, you know, people are more forthcoming if they're just with their particular, and that's very binary. I know that's not, uh, you know, but I mean, I'm sure with LGBTQ, uh, same situation. You know, it's, I taught a class called mental, Stand Up for Mental Health. It's people who live with mental illness who want to do comedy wrapped around or based on, want to do stand up based on their mental illness. And the thing is you have to have a diagnosis to get in the class. You have to have a diagnosis to teach the class. So there are no neuro normal people in the class. So everybody felt free. It's like part peer counseling, part comedy class. And I heard this. the stories I heard uh we just you know make hair stand on end uh but they were the funniest people i've ever talked i mean bar none i don't know if they spend a lot of time shining a flashlight into the dark corners of their psyche or they're just very <laughs> self-reflective so they're always but the stuff that, that came out of their mouth didn't even have to be edited um my favorite was camille and had a horrible backstory her psychiatrist said um are you depressed yes have you thought of suicide yes do you have a plan? She goes, i got five plans. Five plans? She goes, Yeah. Do you want to hear them all or just the ones that involve you? It's so funny, it's been so dark and so well written. I, I just, I, was, I go, Camille. That's amazing. And that's the way it came out of her head. It, they were just like that. They could, the, something about the, the wiring. But again, because we all had a diagnosis, everybody felt that if you put a neuronormal person in the room, with all of us, then people will be holding back you know because they don't want to tell you know the normal person they were you know their father sold them into white slavery when they were eight
1: mm. or
0: whatever that was part of the meal story so yeah it's uh, I think you know sometimes it's better to separate the folks who the give them you know that way you get permission to say whatever you know guys would say or women would say
1: you know. And I think it's valuable to, to recognize it's not about, it's about connecting with yeah. people that you relate to. And it isn't meant to be, it's, it, it's not meant to be divisive, it's meant to be connecting. And then yeah. you can come out of that and be more connected. And I'm in a, in a group. We meet like once a week and it's so far it's all ladies men would be welcome but they are not in the group right now but the conversation is different and we can laugh about similar things Mm -hmm. without being concerned about that judgment so um and i think that i recently had a conversation about hunting and people like oh you could go on the hunting trip with us i'm like nope guys go hunting I will be here painting my nails, which I don't do very often, but you go ahead and go have those conversations and talk about whatever, because I don't, I think a lot of times men don't have that space and they need it. And I think women, like you mentioned, collect friends, men tend to shed them. And if you have some important relationships, I think you need to to take the time to maintain them.
0: Yeah. Uh, I've got a friend who lives in Philadelphia. Uh, if I called him and said, i am um, in a bad place i'm you know i'm I'm actively suicidal. He would get on a plane with a mask on of course, and <laughs> whatever, whatever it costs, fly here tomorrow
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know wouldn't ask me any questions, just get on a plane account yeah, you need people in your life who are willing to you know to, to to drop everything and uh you know rally around so
1: and you need people who are paying attention i had some rough days last week for a number of reasons and a a couple people reached out to me like immediately and they caught it though. They caught that I was having a rough day, that I was like in a, not a bad place, but a weird place. And it's times like that when you really know that there are people in your corner and you really appreciate them. And so I very much value the people who are Paying attention, shall we say?
0: Yeah, I got a text um, from a friend, a woman who actually has the only podcast network dedicated to mental health podcasts. She's got over eighty mental health podcasts on her. Wow. Yeah, and she, I was reading a text from her, and I, and then another text, and I thought, so I sent her a note and I said, "Have I upset you? Are you mad?" And turned out she was in the middle of like a twenty-one day cleanse. (laughs) like water and lemon juice oh geez here's no i'm in the middle of a cleanse and i'm miserable but it was there and you know if you read between the lines of the text you're like this just doesn't sound so yeah you're right you have to pay attention you have to be and willing to say something you know because i tell people look people don't say something for a couple of reasons one they're afraid to say the wrong thing uh two they don't know what to say Uh, and i say look it doesn't always matter what you say that you say something Just step up and, you know, say, and be persistent. If if intuition tells you, um, I just read, um, um, I'm I'm reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blank, or listening to it. And it talks about the um, adaptive unconscious, where you pick up things, you know, verbally and visually that you're not really aware of. And then something, you walk by somebody, you get a thought, like, boy, he seems off should always go with that it's some sort of evolutionary thing we have built into our brains that we collate this information and then at some point it bubbles up as intuition and he said always go with your intuition better to say look is there something i mean are, are you really okay or better to have him say no we have a new baby and been up for three nights and i just haven't slept and i'm fine than to have you know survivor's guilt because you didn't say something So I always tell people, go with your gut. If you walk by somebody and the word depressed pops in your head or suicide, turn around and go, excuse me, Uh, are you okay? I mean, really okay.
1: You know, okay. I didn't know I was going to talk about this little piece, but um, years ago, uh, it's been, well, almost 10 years now. um, I... Ended up filing for a necessary divorce for a number of reasons. And I found myself at my little beach spot. And I'd been up all night, just stressed out, freaking out. All the things I thought that I knew were being blown apart. And I went to that beach place and took a nap. And a few days ago, I was at that same spot. And I saw a gal sitting on a log and I, and it was started to rain. And I thought, that's a little weird. Like, but I bet it was just, I've been there at this place where you need to go somewhere. And so I walked my dog, I turned around, I came back and I was like, do I say something? And I was trying to be really keyed in to, to whatever. And it was like, no, just, just walk down by the water with your dog, like be present, but you don't have to say anything. So I was like, okay, so that's what I did. I walked down to the water, kind of fussed with my, I have a lab. So she loves the water. You know, it wasn't weird for me to walk down to the water and I turned around and I kind of glanced over and I looked at her and we didn't really have any interaction, but I just had this sense that it was important for me to be, present for a moment and that's really all that happened but had I not gone through some of those experiences myself I don't know if I would have been as keyed in to pay a little more attention Um, and so did I impact I don't know but I feel like and I know that sometimes it's that little voice that prompts us to take an action and that can make a big difference
0: and that's what he's talking about. That that yeah. tickle in the back of your brain and thought, that's odd. I I think I need to I, I need to be present. Just, just be present. And just let her know that somebody else is on the planet.
1: Yeah. And so it was it was one of those moments where I don't know. I was just trying to be keyed in and and I've had other people it's amazing if someone says, Are you okay? It's amazing what that can do, and if they're sincere and they mean that, um, it can make a huge difference.
0: Yeah, my wife works in a grocery store as a cashier, and when she asks you how you're doing, it's not perfunctory. She really—I mean, she looks me you in the eye. She wants to know how you're doing. She said people just burst into tears at the cash register. You know, I'm getting divorced, or my daughter died by suicide, or you know, whatever. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, that human connection to the story of Kevin Hines, the guy who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As you know, he's, as he's going, he said to himself, if anybody on the bus on the way down there says, right, now, Are you okay? I'm just going to spill my guts tell them to call the police. I'm a suicide. Nobody said anything. And he goes out on the bridge, and you know, anybody stops me on the bridge and asks me I'm okay, I'll, you know, same thing. I'm calling the police. I'm a suicide. So he's looking over the rail. Somebody touches him on the shoulder. He thinks, Thank God. Turns around. It's a tourist. And she she's holding out her iPhone, and she goes, "Would you take our picture?" Sure, I'll take your picture. Takes their picture, hands back the phone. The couple walks away, and he goes over the he goes over the railing Mm -hmm. into the water. And if anybody had said something like, "Are you okay?" he would have, of course, as most people do when they go over the rail and survive. He knew as soon as he let go, he was yeah, that was a bad idea. But he survived, so.
1: And now yeah, he talks about his experience, which, look, we're, we're here talking about it now. So you just, yeah, you don't know. Yeah, I don't
0: know. I always try, like you, I always, you know, if I walk by somebody and think, you know, even a stranger, and something seems odd, you okay, man? Or you all right? Just, you know, you don't want to, I mean, there's a, nowadays a the freak factor is so high out there. you don't want to get involved in a conversation you're you're sorry you ever started but just uh hey is everything okay you know most times it's you know everything's fine but
1: Mm -hmm. you never know well i i thank you for coming and talking with me today and (laughs) you're welcome i just i appreciate the conversation and the the authenticity, and I think it's what people need right now.
0: Oh, Lord, yes.
1: So how do people reach you? Where do they find you? I know you've got a website. and
0: I'm in witness protection, though. You really can't. Uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good to no, know.
0: <laughs> the, um, I, the, the Mental Health Comedian, the thementalhealthcomedian.com, which is probably where you found the MP3 of the first volume of our audio book. Our first volume of our book, which, by the way, I voiced, I got to narrate, um, and so the and just type in the mental health comedian without the .dot com because that's my that's my Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn, it's YouTube, it's all that that's my brand basically, the mental health comedian. Um, and you're welcome to put my phone number in the show notes in case somebody wants to, you know, they're not suicidal but they're having a really bad day and need somebody, you know, who understands. Want, you know, I find that they don't have to explain anything to me, you, don't to, you know. I have you know. I mean, I pretty much get it. You know, you don't have to run. You know, just, just start talking. The phone number is eight five eight four zero five five six five three. I was at a college, Lynchburg College, and I was the my keynote. young woman came up after which she goes, "Can I give you a hug?" I'm like, "Oh, dear God." <laughs> you know i'm 60 she's 20 it's right in the middle of the me too movement i'm thinking everybody's got a video camera in their hands and so i can see the headline tomorrow you know speaker ropes co ed, so i gave her a very brotherly pull my pelvis back hug and i said are you a hugger she goes no i don't hug i go well uh exp- you want to explain it to me she goes well um i've been in therapy for two years and i'm sitting in the back of the room listening to you on your keynote. And she goes, 15 minutes into your keynote, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this guy's inside my head. Mm. She goes, that 45 minutes, she goes, I got a great therapist. She's got wonderful qualifications, great education, no context for what I'm going through. Mm. So, two years of her, 15, 45 minutes with you tonight was, was did more for me than two years with her because you get it. So that's, again, that's my why. It's that connection all of a sudden. That's why when I open my keynote. I say, you know, runs in my family, my grandmother, my great aunt, and I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger, which gets a nervous laugh. But that's there. The The barrel, the gun barrel thing is there for the mentally ill people in the room. To, 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 because you can see them do this. Lean in. <laughs> and the neuro-normal neur- people do this. Oh, my mm. God. <laughs> So it's kind of for both groups, um, but it tells the people in the room who have a mental illness that, okay, this guy's not, you know, it's going to be a little different than the usual clinical, you know, keynote on depression, thoughts of suicide.
1: And the idea of leaning in, when you find someone who gets it, you, exactly, you lean in to that moment and... um Find that connection, and I, and that connecting piece, and the fact that we're all human. I think is the key. Like we need the connection.
0: And somebody else going through it. Somebody else gets it. Somebody else has gone through it and survived. I did a dental thing where the, because I, you know, I do dental conventions, and everybody's walking out. One woman walking toward me, and she's crying. I can see she's crying. She's walking up, and by the time she gets to me, she's crying so hard she cannot speak. I said, do you have chronic suicidal aviation? Nod. You didn't know it had a name, Nod. Uh, You just thought you were some kind of freak, Nod. I said, do you have a therapist? Nod. When you get back home, set an appointment um, and tell them what you learned today. And for goodness sake, tell them you Googled it. Don't tell them you learned it from a comedian. (laughs) And uh, yeah. And a, a week later, I got an email from her. She goes, Frank, I think I was at the dental conference simply to meet you. You changed my life and I can't say that about a lot of people. Again, it's that revelation that oh my god it's like you said we all think we're alone in these thoughts and to find out that yeah that's not the case it's it's got a name it's you know
1: and people understand like there are people that understand without any explanation and yeah and i i appreciate those people (laughs) um and they do exist
0: yeah, I think having a mental illness and uh, living with mental illness of some kind oftentimes makes makes you more empathetic. I think we suffer a bit for it because we feel others' pains more deeply.
1: Mm-hmm. But we're
0: more likely to pick up on the woman sitting on the log. That's odd.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know what I mean? It tickles that part of our, you know, all of a sudden we realize, hold on, something's up. Mm-hmm. The Yeah. Uh, Anyway, it's been a a platinum time this long.
1: Well, you know, I was listening, I was in a podcast challenge last week and the instructor was like, podcasts go as long as podcasts need to go. And I was like, oh, "Oh, well, that explains a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It it was a, a shift for me to be just like, Okay, and then if I have to release two episodes or, like, two segments, okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank it's, you. You know, it's just, it, it, conversations go as long as conversations go. So, you know, I, I'll, we, with the podcast I do, we always go, look. it's probably going to be 30, 45 minutes, but, but, you know, if it goes shorter, fine, if it's longer, fine. You know, yep. if, it's, if it's good conversation.
1: Adaptability.
0: Yes. Flexibility. Got <laughs> kind of to pivot.
1: That explains my entire life.
0: Pivot. Yeah, Lord. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's been useful in this situation to be able to having worked for myself for so long mm-hmm. and reinvent myself over and over, and then be able to, you know, like, okay, I can't really market the speaking because nobody is booking. I got to do the TEDx thing, okay. So,
1: <laughs> virtual can be good.
0: And virtual, yeah, and I'm gotta say I'm a little, I'm getting a little spoiled doing the virtual keynotes at, at home in front of the green screen, no, no plane flight. No, no, no time zone problems. No, <laughs> you know, I mean, I would like to go back to doing it live some point, but, you know, it's not, I've spent the summer with my wife. So that's, you know, it's been, it's been, she goes to work, but I'm home, you know, when she's home, I'm home. So there, there has been a few, there have been a few silver linings.
1: Well, Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, send me a link when you post it or two links if you post it, to, <laughs> two episodes, and I'll, I'll share them on my social media.
1: I will do that. Thank you.
0: Thank you. If you or a loved one has a hoarding problem, let's work together on a solution.